You're listening to Meaningless, a year-long series of sermons from the book of Ecclesiastes from Holy Cross Presbyterian Church in Stanton, Virginia. Ecclesiastes is an honest look at where we as people seek to find our meaning, money, work, pleasure, success, even religion. The book unmasks them as meaningless, not because they aren't good things, but because they weren't intended to be ultimate things. We were made for God. When we return to Him through the reconciling life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, all of those things are filled with the meaning only He can give. Hey, for the rest of you, if you could turn in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes. If you don't have a Bible with you, the text is in your order of worship. If you don't own a Bible, there's a stack of them on that back table in front of that uh, laptop. That's our gift to you. I want you to grab one of those and take one with you, okay? Because uh, we want everybody to have access to God's Word. Uh, We believe firmly that it is powerful uh, and can change us. So that's why we do what we're about to do. This is what we're about to do here, for, for those of you who are unfamiliar with this Christian preaching, which, which really the point of it is, um, as Christians, we believe that God's Word is meant to shape us. It's meant to, to form us into a, a certain kind of people, a people that, that both uh, depend on fully the Lord Jesus Christ, um, and who know Him, um, but also who show Him into the world. And so that's part of what, what this is about, is, is uh, coming under the authority of God's Word. Um, and where we're doing that this morning is the book of Ecclesiastes. It's in the Old Testament. Something called wisdom literature, which, which really just means it's, it's, um, it's words kind of gathered to help us navigate life. And, and since September, we've been walking through this book uh, doing something called expository preaching, which just means we've been going verse by verse uh, trying to understand the book as a whole. Uh, and the purpose of this book, for those of you who have been here, you've known this, but this is our last one, so kind of got to wrap things up a little bit. So the, the purpose of the book of Ecclesiastes um, is to help us take an honest look at the many places where we place our hopes, our hopes to make things right for us, our hopes to make the world right. They're good things, good things like pleasure, relationships, um, good things that have, can be put to good purposes like money and, and influence and power. The problem is is that because of who we are as a people, we take these good things, we make them ultimate, and when we do, when we take something that's good and we make it ultimate, it becomes meaningless. And that's that's what this book has been about over and over and over again. And and as I've said, this is our last time in this book. We've gone through all the options. Now we hear a summation. If none of these things can hold our hopes, what can? This morning we we come one last time through the book of Ecclesiastes and we, we discover the end of the matter. So... As is our habit here, if you wouldn't mind, uh, standing in honor of God's Word. We'll be reading chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes, verses 9 through, through 14, through the end of the book. This is the Word of God. Besides being wise, the preacher, and that is not me, that's the guy who wrote the book, okay? The preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying the arranging and arranging uh, many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. 
Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment. With every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is God's word given for us so that we might flourish. Would you pray with me? Father, this is your time. And so wherever we're at in this place, we brought our stories with us. Some of us are coming with stories of triumph and joy, and others of us are struggling. Some of us are just curious, and others of us are still wondering why we're here exactly. We don't have to pretend those aren't true, because you are a God who meets us right where we are. And so, Father, we ask that you would meet us by your Spirit right where we are. Holy Spirit, would you come and open our hearts and our ears? Would you, would you come and speak and preach your gospel to us? Would you let Christ and his cross come forward and the one who preaches fall to the wayside? Because as we say, Lord Jesus, you alone hold the words of eternal life. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. All right. Given that it is our last time in Ecclesiastes, it feels, feels like we should probably catch everyone up. For those of you who haven't been here, there's a few of you. Um, here, here it is. Here's the entire book of Ecclesiastes. Everything is... Meaningless. That's it. It's the whole thing. Um, but maybe that's a little too brief, so let me flesh that out. This book is the culmination of an experiment. The book of Ecclesiastes is an experiment. An experiment by a guy who our, our author this morning called the preacher. Uh, other, other translations call him the teacher. Um, it doesn't really matter what you call him. The point is this. Um, he has been conducting an experiment. He's, he's look, looking at the world through all of his experience and all of his resources, and he's saying, okay, I want to try and find something apart from a personal, ultimate God to place my hopes in. I recognize that there's something missing, and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to fill that with, with things like, um, like, well, like things we do it with, like sex and money, like power and knowledge. And his purpose is to see if those things can deliver on their promises. You know what I mean by that, right? That deliver on their promises. Like, say, well, look, last time I checked, my, my $50 bill didn't say anything to me. But, but it does. All of these things seem to, to promise something to us. We know this in our culture, right? Um, you walk through a mall, not the Stanton Mall, but you walk through a real mall. And if you walk through a mall, what you would find is, is advertisement after advertisement making promises to you. Right? If you, if you turn on your television, you watch the advertisements, promises are being made to you. If you just have this kind of skin cream, you'll look 50 years younger. If you have, just have this kind of, of uh, adult beverage, all of these people of the opposite sex will be so attracted to you. Like, all of these things make promises to us. And those are the explicit ones. Those are the ones that someone else are telling. But what about the ones that are in our heart? You know what I mean. Like, um... If I could just get that raise, everything would be okay with me. Everything would be good. I could rest. I could relax. If I, if I just were able to find a spouse or find a different spouse, if I were just able to, if my, if, if my friends could actually meet my needs, my spouse could actually meet my needs. Like, we, we have these thoughts. Um, we, we take these good things, and we want them to be ultimate for us. 
Money becomes everything. Success becomes everything. I think, if I just get respect, I'll be somebody. I'll finally be somebody. The problem, over and over again, has been that these things are meaningless. And remember, that's not to say they're pointless. He's very clear that these are good things. But they're meaningless, which means that they can't hold the weight of those hopes. They can't deliver on their promises. So what can? That is where our text this morning comes in, because another voice seems to begin, right? He starts talking about this preacher, this teacher in the third person. Another voice starts to begin, one that has kind of framed this whole discussion and gives us what will be, hopefully, uh, for, for most of us, hopefully for all of us, my prayer would be for all of us, gives us what would be something that can actually hold our hopes, okay? So we're going to look at this text in two ways this morning. There's an outline in your bulletin. We're going to look at the word that we need, and then we're going to look at the fear that we need. The word that we need and the fear that we need. Okay? Let's get started. The great thing about this passage, especially if you're getting ready to get up and and preach it or teach it, is that it really divides up into two nice, neat parts. Okay? And so that's that's where we're taking it this morning. Both things our our writer tells us are necessary. And the first is the word we need. Look down at verses 9 and 10. And we're going to look first at, at its nature, the nature of the word we need. He says that the teacher or the preacher taught and wrote down Proverbs... And uprightly, he wrote words of truth. Now, stop there because um, my guess is that some of us have already started, like the wheels started turning when I, when I said that, um, because there's a lot that we can say about that. Let's, let's not miss that what was just given to us is a claim about this book. There was a claim that was just made. What he is saying is that these are words of truth. Now, that can mess with us, right? Because, I mean, we, we live in an age that begins to look with suspicion on things like truth claims. When someone claims to know the truth on something, uh, we, we begin to, to get suspicious that what we've seen and, and kind of the cultural air that we breathe is that those kind of claims are made by people who are trying to control us, right? And because they're trying to control us, they, they use words like truth. It, it's actually just a power play. And we have spent the better part of 50 or 60 years learning how to unmask those things. Now, this book, the book that, of Ecclesiastes, but actually the entire Bible, was not originally written in English. Um, the book of Ecclesiastes was written in Hebrew, so, so maybe that kind of idea of truth isn't quite what was meant. In the original, in the original Hebrew, the word that we translate truth means, well, it means truth, uh, but, it, but it actually has a further nuance. When we hear truth, we think as opposed to falsehood right? Something's true, something's false. Like, that's what we think. But the word here in, in, in the original carries a further meaning. It does mean that, but it carries a further meaning. It means that it is something that is reliable, something that is trustworthy, something that is reliable to base your life upon. Now, think about that for a minute. Again, some of us, when, when I say that, basically what he is claiming is that this book is not just true, like it, it, it's true, but it, it's something that you can base your life upon reliably, and some of us here, like, we're skeptical of that. Because like I said before, we, we've come to believe that all claims to truth, all claims to truth are culturally determined, right? Except for that one. Right? All claims, it, you ever notice that? Isn't that funny? Like, we never have the thought that maybe our, our cultural belief that all truth is culturally determined is actually a result of Western European culture and not, yeah, never mind. All right, let me move on. Um, here's the thing. All of us. All of us will base our lives upon a reliable word. Every one of us. 
That's not a Christian thing. That's a human thing. We all do it. It is something, some word, some, some idea, some, something for us has become so self-evident that we don't even see it anymore until it bucks up against something else, right? And for many of us, that word is, is this, that truth can't be universal. All opinions are equally valid unless they challenge mine, right? Unless, uh, you know, at that, at that point they're no longer valid. But in other words, we accept by faith the idea that universal truth cannot exist a faith statement. You can't prove that. There's nothing to prove about it. It, it. It's a faith statement. But the argument here in this book is that the words of this book are reliable and that they are true instead of false. In other words, what we're being told is that what we, what we have read, what we have spent the ne- last um, nine months or so going through since September, I think it's about nine months, uh, is... is um, both true and trustworthy. And friends, can I tell you that that is not just the claim of the book of Ecclesiastes. That is the claim of the entire Bible. That is the claim of the entire Bible. Over and over again, the Bible claims that it is not just a storybook. It is not just the the particular account of the religious life of one group of people. Uh, and, and, And not even kind of someone's take on how the world works. The Bible presents itself consistently this book presents itself as true in everything that it claims. That's the nature of the word in which he is, he is kind of commending to us that it is true, that it is trustworthy. That leads us to the purpose of this word. Look down at verse 11. He says this, The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed to the collected sayings. Now stop there. Let's be honest. No one of us, maybe, maybe one of us or two of us, but most of us have no clue what that means, right? Because we, we don't live in an agrarian, uh, an ancient agrarian culture. A goad, right? Maybe you've heard the phrase like kicking against the goads. Uh, a goad is a, it basically it's a cattle prod. That's what it is. It's a stick with a nail on the end of it in the ancient world. Some kind of metal spike. Nowadays it would have some kind of like electric shock on it, right? But it's a, it's a goad. It is a, it's a cattle prod. And you would use it to move cattle or oxen in a given direction. Right? Now, that, of course, raises the question. If what he's saying about these words is that they are like goads that are intended to move us, why would we need such things, right? But to get at the answer, you have to understand a little bit about why this book was written. Now, that is to say, look, we have no idea what the motivations of the dude who actually wrote this book were. We have no clue, all right? Uh, we weren't given those. Um, however, we do know our own. And so that helps a little bit. Because look, you and I would not pick up this book and read it um, and, and, and read about a guy who tried to put his hopes in anything other than a personal ultimate God and think to ourselves, now there's an idea. Maybe I should try that. Like, that never crosses our mind. Why? Because you know, it's more, like, more likely the fact that these things, these ideas, these things that he talks about. Now, maybe not for all of us, but my guess would be if you've been here over the last nine months, something in what he has said has been like, yeah, yeah, that's me. I do that. And some of the things you're like, no, not really so much. But some of them you're like, yeah, I mean, that dude's reading my email. I don't know what to, what to do about that. Um, and that is because we seem to automatically look to everything but God to fill us to make the world right for us and to hold our hopes. But that's not a mystery. The Bible explains that, right? The Bible explains that to us. 
It says that, you know, we were made for God. But right in the beginning, we began to believe a lie. And that lie was simply this, that God was not for us. He didn't love us. That he, in fact, uh, was holding us back. And that we, what we could be and what we needed to be was independent from him. We needed to be separate from him. We were made for him, which means we were made to be dependent on him for everything. Life, breath, meaning, um, identity, everything. But instead, we, we came to believe that what we actually needed was to be independent from him. And when we did, we could be like him. Real simple. And when we believed that lie, we betrayed God and turned away from him. And one of the results of that betrayal, we'll get to the other later, is, is that we now, by nature, live out of that lie. In other words, it is our assumption. I do not have to teach you, or I, no one has to teach you, God is not trustworthy. We all, by nature, believe that. And you say, no, 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 Rick, you don't understand. I've been going to church my whole life. I'm always doing good things for God. Da, da, da. That's not what I'm talking about. When the stuff hits the fan, where do you turn? Like, it, where, that's the question. When, when crisis happens... Where do you turn? Is it automatically, are you like trying to get control of things? Trying to reduce the complexity? Looking to your checkbook to see how much money you might have in there? Are you, are you um, just trying to check out and go, look, I just need to go, I need to go exercise? Or are you like, I just need a drink? Like, where you go when you're in the midst of crisis is a good indicator of like, look, look. Ah, learning to be dependent on God is not something that happens automatically, right? And this is where this word comes in, because you see, the Bible presents itself, and here it is stated explicitly. The Bible is a corrective. It speaks true and a reliable word into our lives to base our entire lives on, and it does this because we need it, because we need it. Look, if you are stuck living with the assumption that the God that you were made for, the God, the, the only one who can fill you, that that person is to be avoided, and that independence from him is the goal, then you need something to challenge that. And that is exactly what this dude says this book is for. It's exactly what this is for. It is to prod us away from what the Bible tells us will eventually destroy us and instead move us back towards reality. That sounds really arrogant, doesn't it? I mean, think about that. Here's a dude who's in the same position we are, and he's writing this. Um, he's writing that his word can be a cattle prod to move the rest of us cattle towards something better. And it would be insanely arrogant, except for the claim of its source. Look at the end of verses 11 and 12. Because he says this, that these words are given by one shepherd. Now, that, of course, connects us to the goad language, right? Because... We would expect that shepherds would have some means of moving their animals in places when they don't want to go. Not always do they want to move. Um, and so it kind of connects to that. But the question is, who is this shepherd? Now, in some of your Bibles, including the ESV, which is what I read from, but some of you have like uh, different, different translations, but many of your Bibles will have that shepherd that, first of all, S is, is capitalized. Gives a little bit of a hint right, on who exactly he's talking about. Scholars will tell you, that the shepherd in view here is God himself. Throughout the Bible, God is presented as a shepherd. He's a shepherd to his people. As a matter of fact, one of the things in, in, um, 
And the Old Testament prophets that he would consistently say to to the leaders of his people is, you haven't shepherded them well, so I'm going to come do it. I'm going to come and be their shepherd, right? Jesus was not the first one to talk about himself as a shepherd of God's people. Um, That was God language. Um, Throughout the Bible, God is presented as a shepherd, and here is no different, okay? Now let me get really explicit. That means that our author is saying that the words of the teacher which were his words, were also given by God. Now think about that. That claim is that the source of these words, these words that investigate, can there be true life apart from God, can there be meaning apart from God, were actually from God. And and again, this is not just the claim of this book here, that is the claim of the entire Bible. This is the claim of the entire Bible. This book here is not just the work of human authors. It is that. Look, I can't deny this. The thing did not drop down out of the sky, right? Like, dudes put pen to paper and, and wrote this. However, it is not just the work of human authors, but behind them, in a way that doesn't suppress who they are and yet guards their word from error, is, is the voice of God. Okay? The words that we use to describe that in Christian theology are words like inspired, meaning that God actually breathed out this word, and, and, and inerrant, meaning that it is true in everything that it teaches. Okay? This word is reliable, it is true, and it is a necessary corrective to us because it is from God. Now listen, and that is not just the claim here. If, if I were just to go to the New Testament, right, and just take you to just a couple of places, like two two places in particular. In the book of 2 Peter, in, in chapter 1, verse 21, Peter says, Peter says that, look, dudes didn't come up with this on their own. Like, prophets didn't do this on their own, but all prophecy comes from God. Men didn't make it up. And then in, in chapter 3, he's talking, he's talking to folks about um, another of Jesus' followers who wrote books in the New Testament, the apostle Paul, and he's saying, look, let's be honest, some of the things a dude writes are hard to understand. And if Peter said that, you and I who, who actually read Paul should feel comfort that you don't get it, right? Peter couldn't get it either. So, like, um, but he's saying, look, some of the things are hard th- that, are, that he writes are hard to understand, as are all of the scriptures. Uh, and then, and then uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, of course, the famous one, Paul writes that all scripture is actually breathed out by God and useful for, for various sundry things. You can look that up, 2 Timothy 3, uh, verses 15 and 16. God's word is reliable, it is true, and it is a necessary corrective to us because it is from God. Listen, this makes perfect sense in the context of this book because we have spent 11 chapters trying to pursue and figure out what you and I think will make things right for us, what will give us meaning, what will fix the problems that we have, and over and over and over again we're told, it won't do it. It can't do it. And I'm like, okay, well, I'll come up with a different idea. How about this? Nope. How about this? Nope. And it's like, we can't... Uh, I got nothing. They come to the end, I'm like, I got nothing. And he says, don't worry. Don't worry. Uh, You're going to hear from someone outside of you. You're going to hear from God. That's why he lays out the warning in verse 12, right? In verse 12, look look right there. He says, my son, beware of anything beyond these. In other words, these words, right? What he's not saying is that other people's words are bad. Like, like, don't don't read them. He's He's saying, ultimately, they can't help us. We need to hear from God. And so what I'd ask you this morning is, what word are you basing your life on? 
What word are you basing your life on? What is so reliable for you that you are basing your life upon it? If you are here and you somehow think that you can figure God and life and yourself out just by thinking hard enough, or by reading through the self-help section of Amazon, or, or finding some other blog, it's not going to work. You and I must hear from outside of ourselves. We need God to speak to us because we are stuck in a lie that drives us towards meaninglessness. If you're a Christian this morning, listen to me. We, we live in a day in which theological material is more available than ever. And so is false doctrine. It is more available than ever. Books are good. Look, I have large bookshelves full of books, and they are stacked on the floor next to them. Books are good. But the Bible is our only authority. You are a Christian here this morning. I don't, honestly... Christian authors are wonderful. They are great. Look, I I read them too. But the Bible is our authority. If it's not in there, you don't base your life upon it. It is our corrective. It is given by the one shepherd to rescue us from our proneness to wander from him. If you think you can grow in your faith and never pick this up, or, 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 you know, have it mediated to you by the latest podcast or blog author, okay, You are deceiving yourself. God has spoken it. And it is his word that we need. And that brings us to the fear that we need. Look down at verse 13 to see the nature of it. He says this. We've looked at the word that we need. Now we come to the fear that we need. He says the end of the matter is here. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. Now, if there is anything that would set our postmodern minds on edge and think... Here it comes. Like, it's that phrase right there. Like, all the alarms of someone's trying to control us have jumped in with the fact that dude is saying, fear God, right? Because we have visions of frothy mouth preachers pounding on pulpits and, and telling them, God's going to get you. You know, like, that's, that's what is going through our heads when we hear, fear God. I mean... He talks about fear. He talks about commands. What more do you need? But, but after an entire book on seeing life apart from God, this is the conclusion he comes to. So we need to try and understand it on its own terms. And to do that, we need to understand what this word fear means. Because when you and I hear fear, we think terror. Right? Trembling. Like, be afraid of someone. Be scared. And that is the exact opposite of what this word means. In its biblical context. But listen... If that is your experience, if that's what church has been for you, can I tell you that you have been wronged? You've been wronged, and I am sorry. But that is not what this is talking about. Okay? It doesn't mean being afraid of. In the Old Testament, fearing God is linked indelibly with two other words, with worship and adoration. Okay? In Deuteronomy chapter 10, Deuteronomy is in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 to 13, it sets fearing God in parallel to a few other phrases. Walking with Him, loving Him, and serving Him with all your heart. In other words, to fear God is to make Him ultimate in your life. That's what it means. To make Him ultimate in your life. One Old Testament scholar puts it this way. He says, look, 
Um, fear is almost a synonym with adore. And adoration, he says, is an expression of total dependence on another. And so after looking at how we try and place our hopes in everything else, we are told that the one way, the one takeaway from this book that we should be making is that God needs to be ultimate instead of these things. God is the one whom we should be depending on, not our cash flow, not our reputation, not our ability to control the world. But the purpose of the fear is given in verse 13. He says this, this is the whole duty of man. Okay? In other words, look, I know that in Christian circles the word duty has bad connotations, and I, I mean D-U-T-Y, right? That kind of duty. Uh, but here, here's what I mean. What it says when it calls it, this is the whole duty of man, what he means is that we were made, we were created to fear God. We were created to adore God, to worship God. God, to make him ultimate. That is what we were created for. It's not just what we're supposed to do. It's our very purpose. But there's one problem. It is the one thing that by nature we cannot do anymore. But to get at why, we need to revisit that story that I talked about. Remember I talked about how we were made for God, but we betrayed him, okay? That's what's being talked about here. Duty, like I said, is another way of saying our purpose. It's what we are created for. It's our our chief end, what we owe, in a sense, as creators created by the creator, okay? Because you see, we weren't made for ourselves. We were made for God and, and sought our own independence from him when we began to believe that we actually were made for ourselves, that's what, that's what the, the little slithery dude meant when he said, you can be like God. You don't need him anymore. You can be just like him. We began to believe that we could be the captains of our fate, masters of our souls. And so we turned from our duty and instead sought our own way, and that is what the Bible calls sin. Now, most of us have grown up believing, especially if you're from this area, right, that, that sin, um, that, that word, is really just a certain few behaviors that we're supposed to avoid, right? Um, and look, each subculture in our community has different of those behaviors that you're supposed to avoid. I know that's really weird for us to think about. But you go to different ends of this town and you ask them what behaviors are sin, you're going to get different ones, right? Some of them have to do with um, telling on people, right? Ratting people out. Others are going to have to do with substances. Others are going to have to do with what you do with your body. But they're they're all, they're different things. Um, But, you know, we've grown up thinking, avoid these behaviors, or that as long as we go to church, it makes up for those behaviors, right? As long as you, you know, you can do what you want Monday through Saturday, as long as you're sitting here on Sunday, hanging out for the whole day. In some cases, like, you're going to be okay. It's like you put in your time, Debt gets canceled, and then you go live and you accrue some more, right? Uh, not so. Sin, first and foremost, isn't a set of behaviors. It's a state of being. It's a state of being. The Bible says that we sin because we are sinners. Okay, what that means is that we are living out of that lie that I talked about by nature. That that, that is what we just do. We, we all are in that position, all of us. Sin is seeking independence from God. And look, seeking independence from God can look like what many of us expect it to look like. It can look like a few notorious behaviors, 
Or it can look like being really good so that you can show God all your good deeds. Or so you can show that you worked harder than your neighbor did. And that dude next to you, uh, you know, at, at the line of, you know, at the fast food joint. Like, both of those things, listen to me, both the notorious behavior and the good done apart from God, the Bible says, are sin. It's not about being immoral or moral. You can be very moral and very lost. You tracking with me? All right. We, we are called to adore God, to fear God, to make Him ultimate. The problem is that now, by nature, we are separated from God, alienated from Him, and stuck in a state called sin within which even the best of us, even the best of us are still stuck. We've got to find a rescuer. And that has brought us to, out to us even more in the final verse. Look there. It says God's going to bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Okay? Look, here, here's, the other, here's the other problem. Right? So one, one of our problems is that we, were, we, were ch- like we began living out of a lie by nature. We, be, we became changed. Right? That was one problem. Here's the other one that happened when we sinned, when we turned from God, the one that you probably were expecting. When we talk about sin and seeking independence, we need to understand that the Bible calls this a betrayal against God. It's a betrayal. I know most of us grew up thinking that God is the force, right? right? You know what I'm saying? Like, like when Yoda was talking about the force, he really meant God. It's just another way of talking about God, which means that the force doesn't really have feelings, doesn't really care about anything. It's just the force. It's hovering around permeating all living things you know like that's what we think god is but the bible says that god is a person like a person who speaks and who's known who emotes who emotes like and so we understand that when we when we betray a person you betray your best friend you betray your spouse we know man there's there's consequences to that that's no joke there's consequences to that Every betrayal brings guilt. And this one, certainly no less, right? Consistently in Scripture, God is portrayed as a judge who seeks an end to sin and brokenness in his world. And the basis of that, the basis of that judgment is not that you broke his rules. The basis of that is that you have broken his heart. I have broken his heart. Because those rules are not arbitrary. They're based on who he is. They're based on what he values. And when we turn away and say, I don't want to have anything to do with that. You're not just breaking curfew. You're looking at your spouse saying, you're not good enough for me anymore. Go find me another. I'll trade you in. That's what it's doing. Now, you see, most of us, though, we have thought, uh, if if we have believed that God is a judge uh, at all, We've thought that, you know, if there is a God, what he's going to do, he's going to weigh our good and our bad. And since we think of ourselves as pretty good, let's be honest, right? There's nobody in this room's like, dude, I am the worst of the worst. Like, we all think, yeah, yeah, yeah I've done some stuff. But at the end of the day, my good's going to outweigh my bad. God's going to end up liking me. You know, we're not perfect, but we are sincere. Listen to me. Our problem, according to the Bible, is not that we do a few bad things. Our problem, according to the Bible, is that everything we do by nature is done independent from God, and it is thus sinful. 
If we stand on our own, we will face the judgment of God. Listen, you can, I say this all the time, but I want you to understand it. You cannot make up for your independence independently. You will just compound the problem. It cannot be made up that way. Betraying God is like cheating on your spouse, and roses don't make adultery better. Right? A dinner out does not make up for it. But friends, this is why Jesus came. Like the Bible tells us that all of us by nature are guilty before God. Not, not just the bad folks, not just the non-church folks. All of us. All of us are by nature guilty before God, and we are stuck in that. But God promised to rescue us right there, right at the beginning. In Genesis 3.15, He said, I'm going to make this right. I will make this right. And so when the time was right, God became flesh in Jesus to do just that. He lived that life that you and I can't, and He died to bear our judgment. Look, Jesus did not just come to give you better rules to keep. Have you ever tried that? Okay, look, some of you are new to the Bible. The New Testament, the first book of the New Testament is the book of Matthew. Turn to chapters 5 through 7. I want you just to read through what's called the Sermon on the Mount. He gets up and he tells you, this is the value system of my kingdom. And see if you can do that. I can't. I'll be honest, I've never met someone who can. It's not to say that that's not, that's not part of what it means to be a Christian is to, to seek by the power of the Holy Spirit to live into that. It's that none of us can f- do that right. None of us. Jesus did not come to give you rules to keep. He came to bear judgment in your place. He died on the cross to bear the judgment that you and I deserve for every act of betrayal, whether that betrayal looked really nice and clean or it looked like a train wreck. Now, here's all this fits together. We tend to think that God is trying to coerce obedience out of, out of us by fear, right? That God is trying to make us afraid, and because we have all of these images in our head of Dante's Inferno, right? Let's be honest. All of our visions of hell are based off of Dante. They're not based off of the scriptures. So we have these medieval images of devils with pitchforks and levels, and you know, or, or it's like... Um, just like writhing people, you know, and like that's the image we have. And so we think God's trying to paint us those pictures to get us to serve him. Not true. Look, even if you could be obedient on your own, it is still on your own. It's still not what you were made for. But when we place our faith in Jesus, when we place our hopes on him, when we turn from, from money and from power and from sex, we go, these things cannot fill me. And we go, Jesus, you're the only one that can. We, we, we go from, from independence back to dependence. We are united to Jesus. In other words, his death for sin becomes our death for sin. His perfect life becomes before God our perfect life. And we are reconciled to the God that we have betrayed. Listen to me. Listen close. Don't be fooled. Salvation is always by works. The question is, will it be yours or the works of Christ? That is the only question. Are you ready to stand before God and say, here's what I got. I'm ready. I'm not. Every secret thing, he said. What he says right here every, every secret thing and even if you have lived your whole life and looked really clean you you know the secrets i know mine 
The question is whether we are willing to offer those to God or whether we are willing to turn to Him, admit our brokenness, and claim only the work of Christ. Will you seek to present God your independence or will you rest on Jesus and His work? Now, listen, some of us are thinking right now, we're thinking, okay, great, so I do this and I'm covered, then I can do what I want, right? That's great. I can... I can Turn to Jesus, I can rest on him, and then look, I got my free get out of hell free card, and then I can do what I want. You misunderstand. (laughs) The whole duty of man is to fear God and keep his commandments. The whole duty of man. This book was was written to show us. It was to show us the futility of the ways that we constantly seek life apart from God. And I'm not saying non-Christian versus Christian. I'm saying all of us. All of us. We all do this. It tells us the futility of these ways that we seek to find life apart from Jesus. Jesus actually enables and empowers us to do the very thing this text tells us we were made for. Look, in other words, you don't adore God to get him to love you. Right? Because trust me, if you're, if you're trying to worship and adore God to get him to love you, you're not adoring God. You're not worshiping God. You're adoring and worshiping yourself and using God to get to that, okay? We don't adore God to get his love. We adore him because in Christ we have it. We don't obey God to earn anything from God. We obey because we've been given everything by God. Listen, we're leaving Ecclesiastes, right? This is our last sermon in Ecclesiastes. But we are not leaving the point of the book Our hearts constantly seek to find hope apart from Jesus. And so we need to constantly be turning, not to doing better, but to repent and trust again in Jesus. Look, if you are stuck chasing the dollar, hoping it will save you, your goal is not to stop chasing the dollar. Your goal is to start chasing Christ. That is the goal. If you are stuck finding relief and acceptance in the harem of images of pornography on the internet, the goal is not simply to stop looking at those images. It is to start finding your rest and your acceptance in Christ. The end of the matter is this, friends. You and I were not made for stuff. We were made for the God who loves us. The God whom we betrayed the God who has sought us out in Jesus. Christian or not, friends, the call is the same. To put those things aside and to return to the Lord and to his word through the finished work of Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord, I just want to take a minute and give you thanks because I have watched you through this book that none of us would have expected back in September I have watched you change hearts and lives in this place. And I want to thank you for that because that is purely of you. That is not, that is not uh, because of anything we have done. Who would have thought, Lord, I don't, I'm not sure any of us would have thought that this wisdom book, the book of Ecclesiastes, would be a book that would drive us over and over again back to the cross and back to the gospel. And so we give you praise for it. And this morning in this place, Lord, I know 
that there are some of us here who have, who have been Christians for a long time, and again, we need to turn away from our attempts to do better by our own strength, to understand those things as sin, and instead to return to you, Jesus. To repent and believe and adore the God that we were made for. Others of us, Lord, we've never trusted in Christ, and so I, I pray boldly right now that you would work in our hearts to make them new and to give us faith. You are the author of faith, and you are its perfecter. So, Lord, we look to you to do all of this work. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you guys.